It's up for debate on KLJXLP Flagstaff, KJAC 107.1. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you very much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. We've got a ton to talk about today. I want to talk about the Atlanta Falcons and what their options are for this offseason I also want to talk about the Denver Nuggets and the Lakers and how they matched up last night and the positional clarity in Brooklyn. Before we get into all of that, I want to first jump in with a conversation about the top six quarterbacks in this year's NFL draft. Now, this year is another great year for the quarterback in the NFL. We know that the NFL is going to already have a ton of movement with who is going where and what quarterback is going to be playing at what team this season. It's going to be one of the most uh, most moving off seasons that we've seen. There's going to be a ton of movement from all kinds of teams, and it's going to be huge. But this year's NFL draft also carries five or six guys who could go in the first round. Now, that's pretty big time compared to what we saw last season with Joe Burrow, uh, Tua Tagovailoa, Justin Herbert, and really not many others outside of Jordan Love. Those four were the only ones going in the first round, and they were a little bit more spread out. But for this year's draft, it could be a a potential one, two, three, four uh, for the first four quarterbacks taken. Now, a lot of things would have to happen for that to be the case, but it is something that could definitely happen. Now, because the quarterbacks in this year's NFL draft are all so talented, I want to break down who I think is the best quarterbacks of this class. I want to break down why these quarterbacks are good or why they could be big hits. Now, again, this is another great year for the quarterbacks. Five guys should go in the first round. I'd be shocked if there was any less than five guys going in the first round. There is a possibility for six. So for this first segment, I want to talk about Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson. These are the two guys that I think are the top two quarterbacks coming into this year's NFL draft. Now, for Trevor Lawrence, he is a lock for the number one pick unless the Jaguars do something extremely unexpected. If the Jaguars decide to move on and not take Trevor Lawrence with the number one pick, they're making a huge mistake. Now, if you haven't watched Trevor Lawrence, he is a six foot six physical phenom at the quarterback position. He's one of the best quarterback prospects that we have ever seen. And I mean, he's been compared to a great quarterback prospect like Andrew Luck, who went number one overall back in 2011 or 12. But for Trevor Lawrence, he's a little bit different of a quarterback than a lot of the guys coming in the draft this year. His six foot six stature provides him with a physical advantage over a ton of other quarterbacks. Having that size and the arm strength that Trevor Lawrence has is just a huge advantage for him moving forward. And he's going to be a shining spectacle of a quarterback coming up soon. His ability to throw the football is unmatched. Nobody in this draft has, has the same opportunity or the same talent when it comes to throwing the football his deep ball accuracy is almost perfect mentally he dissects defenses and really makes mistakes his 90 to 17 touchdown to interception ratio at Clemson has been phenomenal that's nearly five to one now when Trevor Lawrence does make mistakes he might be because he's forcing the ball trying to do a little too much but with a great team around him Trevor Lawrence has found a ton of success with Clemson Now, he does have a a little bit of issues, and his footwork is really the biggest concern as far as how Trevor Lawrence is going to develop. But when you look at a prospect like Trevor Lawrence, he clicks all the boxes. 
His ability to get outside the pocket at six foot six is unmatched by players of his size. His speed is impressive for a guy who is as big as him and somebody who I think he could have a similar career path or a similar talent level to is someone like Josh Allen. Now, of course, Josh Allen doesn't have the same potential as Trevor Lawrence. And the reason being is Trevor Lawrence has the potential to completely change the NFL. And right now, Josh Allen's a great quarterback. He's an MVP-level candidate, but I'm not sure if he has the same upside as Trevor Lawrence, knowing that he's already taken so many steps forward during his college and NFL career. Now, for Trevor Lawrence, he's going to get better. And there's only a few things that you can really work on with a guy like Trevor Lawrence, and that's exciting. When you get a guy who has so many things and so many tools and, and he's just ready to go, that's the best thing to go. And if you're hiring a mechanic, you want the mechanic who has every single tool to fix your car. If they're missing a tool, they might get the job done, but it's not going to be done quite as well. For Trevor Lawrence, he's the top mechanic at the shop. He's going to fix the car, and then he's going to show you how fast it can go too. I mean, Trevor Lawrence is a talented, talented player, and his ability on the football field is going to be absolutely remarkable. I think we could see him in the next three or five years as one of the top quarterbacks in the NFL. And again, the Jacksonville Jaguars should pick him number one overall, but who knows what they're going to do. Urban Meyer is the former Ohio State University head coach, so maybe he'll go with Justin Fields or trade back, but for all honesty, there's really no decision to be made outside of drafting Trevor Lawrence. If you trade down in Jacksonville's point of view, you are losing out on one of the best prospects we have ever seen. That is how good Trevor Lawrence is. But beyond the number one overall pick, there's actually a ton of questions about who might go next and who's going to be the next quarterback off the board. For me, it's a bit of a shakeup. There could be a t three people who go number two overall. And it all depends on what kind of quarterback they're looking for. For me, the next best quarterback, the guy who should go number two, is Zach Wilson. Wilson has endless amounts of upside. He has tons of upside. He's got a huge arm with the ability to extend plays, and his play right now is really reminiscent of Patrick Mahomes. Now, if you're a quarterback and you're in the same breath, if in the same conversation as Patrick Mahomes, as you have that sort of ability, that's a great, great thing to have. And for Zach Wilson, being compared to Patrick Mahomes isn't too far off. Zach Wilson has done nearly the impossible. He's shown his ability to get outside the pocket. He's shown his ability to make big-time throws, but he is a little bit of a risk. For Zach Wilson, 2020 was his best year ever. He had 33 touchdowns and three interceptions. He also had over 3,600 yards. And as a runner, he was also pretty good. He had a, about a dozen touchdowns, and that was just really good for Zach Wilson. But the thing that's a little worrisome about Zach Wilson is how well he's going to be able to transition to the NFL level. His first two years at, in college football at BYU, they were good years, but they weren't anywhere near what we saw this last season. And this last season is what really rocketed him up the, the, the market and puts him in a potential number two overall draft pick situation. In 2019, he was good. He carried a 62% completion percentage, but he only had 2,300 yards. His touchdown to interception rate, 11 to 9, was just not nearly as good as what he had this year. In comparison, 33 to 3 this year was a huge improvement. Now, that is a promising thing for a quarterback like Zach Wilson. He is showing that he has the ability to grow, he has the ability to be coached up. And he's done a great job being coached up with the BYU Cougars. 
Now, let's keep in mind, Zach Wilson wasn't a big-time prospect when he was coming out of, out of college. He was getting offers from teams like Boise State, and that was really where they were peaking. So him getting an offer at BYU close to his home really made, made sense for him. But for Zach Wilson, going number two overall could be a game-changing thing for him. Right now, the New York Jets have the number two overall pick, and who knows what's going to happen? Who knows what the shakeup is going to be as far as the top four picks go in the NFL draft? So Zach Wilson may go number two overall. It might not even be to the New York Jets. But I do believe that Zach Wilson is the most talented quarterback outside of Trevor Lawrence in this in this class. He showed his ability. He was third in the in the entire college football in yards, third in touchdowns, and he did a great job keeping the interceptions low. Zach Wilson has proven that he has a great ability and a great size in the pocket at six foot three. I expect him to be a great game-changing quarterback, and it might take him a couple years, but a team drafting him is going to hit. As long as they put him in a situation where he's not destined for failure. He's got the talent capable of, of performing, He's got the talent capable of becoming a great starter in the NFL, but a team has to get him prepared. A team has to get him ready and able on the field. Now, I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, I'm going to talk about Justin Fields as well as Trey Lance. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you very much for tuning in today. And make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live, bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. Now, before the break, we talked about Trevor Lawrence, and we also talked about Zach Wilson as two of the potential top two quarterbacks to go in this year's NFL Draft. But there's a ton more quarterbacks left to discuss. There is a lot of talent in this year's NFL Draft class. Now, first off, I want to jump right in with another guy who's projected to go in the first round who could potentially go anywhere between two and five overall, barring a drop that is a little bit more unexpected, and this is Justin Fields. Now, Fields was kind of well and expected to be the number two overall draft pick in this year's draft before the season began, and he didn't drop his stock because he didn't play well because he still played significantly well. He still was one of the top quarterbacks in college football this year. But Zach Wilson may have played a little bit better, and that may be the difference. But for Justin Fields, he's been a very good quarterback. Last season, not this season, he was 41 touchdowns and three interceptions, and he looked like a lock at the number two pick. He looked like a great prospect for anybody picking up at that point. But this season, he did have a little bit of trouble with the Ohio State Buckeyes. Now, the big problem with Justin Fields' game is when it comes to the big-time games, the most important games brings up questions. In the Big Ten Championship game against Nor Northwestern, December 19th, this is a game Ohio State won, but Justin Fields didn't put this team in a position to succeed. They had 12 completions for 27 yards, which is a pretty bad completion percentage, along with no touchdowns and two interceptions. For Justin Fields, this game didn't define his season. This game was really a dud that Ohio State won without really much of his help. But for other games, that wasn't the only dud that he had. He had a great game in the All-State Sugar Bowl in the college football playoff semifinal, and he outmatched Trevor Lawrence in a must-win game with six touchdowns and one interception. But when it came to Alabama, the best team in college football, he wasn't ready, and they had another dud of a game. And it wasn't necessarily his fault. He did everything he could, 
but he just couldn't get the ball down the field. So for Justin Fields, there's a lot of questions about if he's going to transition to the NFL game and, and really be that talented. So even with those bad performances, he still has shown great composure in the pocket. And he has a very accurate ball that is pinpoint accurate. His red zone upside is extremely high because he's t- able and willing to take off and extend plays given the chance. Justin Fields is a modern-time quarterback in it that he is going to run the ball. If he has the opportunity, if he sees some space, he's going to run the ball. And that's just the way he plays. So for Justin Fields, he is a very high upside guy. He had 41 touchdowns and three interceptions in his first season as a full-time starter. But I don't know if it's going to be continuing in the upwards direction for Justin Fields. His last season, although it was a little bit more difficult situation, was a little bit worse, and he made a little bit more mistakes, even though they threw way less passes. Six interceptions this year compared to three last year. Now for Justin Fields, he was tremendous last season, and it put him into this situation to be drafted this high. We know he has a ton of talent, but we have those questions that we're not really sure if he's going to reach the marks that he's supposed to. For Justin Fields, he didn't have the same type of talent around him like guys like Mac Jones or guys uh, like Trevor Lawrence had around them. Ohio State's a great team, but this year the wide receiver corps wasn't really the best. And there's not a problem with the wide receiver corps per se, but it wasn't anywhere in comparison to some of the better receiving corps in the league. Chris Olave was the number one receiver for this team, and he did a great job all season long in, and made big-time contributions contributions but for Justin Fields the transition from the college football to the NFL might be a little smoother than most I think he's got a relatively high floor because he's shown that he's capable of putting the ball down the field he's shown that he's capable of running the football and getting extra yardage when necessary Justin Fields has shown that he is a talented enough quarterback to succeed in the NFL and for that reason I have him going number three now I'm not sure if the Miami Dolphins are going to be picking number three, but if they are picking number three, I don't expect Justin Fields to go here. I expect a position outside of the quarterback position. But who knows what's going to happen with the Miami Dolphins. They could trade their draft pick, move down a little bit, and get some great draft capital in return so Justin Fields gets drafted at this position. I still do think that the one, two, three, four quarterbacks in the draft look like they could potentially all be starters right away. Looks like it could be one, two, three, four quarterbacks being drafted all at the beginning of the round, which would be the first time ever. Now, Justin Fields has shown the talent to be drafted in the top five, and I expect him to be drafted very high in this next year's NFL draft. Now, let's move over to somebody else. Next, let's talk about Trey Lance. Right now, Trey Lance sits as a top five quarterback in this draft solely based on last season. North Dakota State was his team, and they're playing a spring season this season, He only got to play one game this year, and that was before he decided to sit out this spring season and prepare for the NFL draft. So we don't really know too much about Trey Lance. We do know that Trey Lance was a really talented quarterback in the FCS, which is good. It's good to be talented in the FCS, but we really haven't seen too many quarterbacks that have come up like Trey Lance with the type of talent that Trey Lance has from the FBS levels or FCS levels. Last people we saw drafted in, from the FCS was one Carson Wentz, who went number two overall. So Trey Lance being in comparison with a quarterback like Carson Wentz, we know Carson Wentz is capable of starting in the NFL. 
We know that he's had a little bit of troubles and he had a little bit of growing pains going into college. Now for Trey Lance, he's a completely different type of player than what we see from Carson Wentz. Trey Lance is probably the best running quarterback in this year's NFL draft. His 2019 season, he had over 1,000 rushing yards and 14 touchdowns. And he also had 2786 yards passing and 28 touchdowns and no interceptions. Now, if it weren't for the one game this season that he did play in the fall, he would have no interceptions throughout his entire collegiate career. That is absolutely incredible. Trey Lance has done a great job of keeping the ball and not forcing turnovers or forcing mistakes. Now, for Trey Lance, I think he's going to take a lot of time to get prepared for the NFL. He's got one season of play to evaluate in college football, but we haven't really seen him. Most of his offers as a quarterback, or most of his offers to play college football came for him to play wide receiver or defensive back. So he's going to take a little bit of time to, to set himself into the NFL and really secure himself as a starter. But for Trey Lance, I think he's got the talent. And the upside is there. The floor for Trey Lance is really the, the big question mark. Is he going to bust out because he hasn't played the, the competition that he could? Is he going to bust out because he's not the, the best passer in the world? Now for Trey Lance, he has been a good passer, but he hasn't had any games of over 300 yards. He hasn't had any situations where he had to go up and face off against a top FBS team. So Trey Lance's transition to the NFL may be a difficult one. Transitioning to a position where you're going up against the best of the best, the biggest and the strongest and the fastest in the NFL, it's going to make things a whole lot difficult, a whole lot more difficult. Now for North Dakota State, their scheming was a little bit behind what we see from the Alabamas and the Clemsons of the world. They had a good uh, scheme, but I don't see Trey Lance using his mind, mentally breaking the defense into, into pieces and, and finding the right target in really any of his games. Now, I spent a lot of time watching his, his film, and he has a big arm. He's got the ability to get the job done, but it's going to take him some time. And I think the first few years for Trey Lance are going to be really rough. So a team that is willing to take that first two years of maybe a couple duds and then potentially have him grow as a quarterback, that'll be his best bet. But for Trey Lance, I think that it's going to take him some time. It's going to be a little bit before he's ready. I compare him to somebody like Josh Allen. I, I know I compared Trevor Lawrence to Josh Allen, but Josh Allen was a quarterback who just wasn't ready for the NFL. He didn't play the NFL talent at Wyoming, but he showed that he had the tools. And Trey Lance is the same kind of dude. He has the tools, he has the ability to make the throws, and he's one of the faster quarterbacks in this year's NFL draft. But the big question is, is he going to take too much time? Is he ever going to be able to develop into that starting caliber quarterback? Because when he joins the league, he's not going to be ready. He's not going to be ready to be the starting quarterback. And even if he is the starting quarterback, he's going to play probably pretty poorly. We've seen some quarterbacks just take some time, and that's just a product of being a quarterback. So I think Trey Lance could potentially find himself into that top four, but his chances to become a, a bust in this year's draft, I think, are higher than others. Now, I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, I'll talk about the two other top QBs in this year's draft. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Up for Debate. Before the break, we talked some quarterbacks going in the NFL draft, who we think is going to go 
second or third and fourth overall. I think it's going to be Justin Fields and then Trey Lance going fourth overall. I want to talk about the other two quarterbacks as well, the two guys we haven't talked about. And these other two guys have the opportunity to go in the first round, but it might not be the case for both of them. First, let's start with Mac Jones. I think Mac Jones is going to go in the first round. I don't have really any doubts about it. He's a guy who has an extreme amount of talent. And I think Mac Jones is one of the more underrated quarterbacks in this year's class. Now, the reason being, the reason why he's underrated and he's not really being talked about as a top four quarterback talked about in that top five overall draft selection is because he's more of a pocket passing quarterback. And the NFL has begun going away from that point. They've begun going away from pocket passing quarterbacks to more guys who are mobile, guys who can take off. And that's just not who Mac Jones is. So his running game may be holding him back a little bit, but the ability that he has as a passer is insane. Now we've already talked about guys who have high athletic upside like Trey Lance, like Justin Fields. Both of those guys have great upside because of their athleticism. Mac Jones doesn't have that upside. And I have Mac Jones as my fifth best quarterback only because his athletic upside isn't quite as high as the guys we've already talked about. The league is changing to favor mobile quarterbacks. I mean, it just is more... There's more to do with your offense. You can change your offense and, and manipulate your offense much more if your quarterback has the ability to get out of the pocket and still make those throws. Now, Mac Jones still has the ability to maneuver the pocket. He still has the ability to get out of the pocket, but he's not going to take off running. He's not going to take off running for 20, 30 yards like we'll see out of Trevor Lawrence sometimes, even though Trevor Lawrence isn't a traditional mobile quarterback. But for Mac Jones, he really thrives off of being a great passer. Now, a big hit against Mac Jones this season was he has the best team around him. Of course, he's going to succeed. But I think any quarterback with this team around him would have better success, but I don't think they are guaranteed to succeed. For Mac Jones, he made the right throws, and he didn't make mistakes, and that's a big deal. Now, if you listen to Nick Saban, he has a ton of praise for Mac Jones. He knows he's got great pocket presence. He's got the ability to read the defense and make the right throws. And that's why Mac Jones could potentially fall uh, a little bit earlier in the draft pick. He could be taken a little bit earlier uh, because of his ability inside of the pocket. Now, there's a couple teams that I think would be great fits for Mac Jones, but he's going to be in a little bit better of a situation than the top four quarterbacks. He's going to be on a team that's a little bit closer to winning now rather than later. And for Mac Jones, if he has the weapons around him, he has the ability to get the job done. He was the leading yards per game guy in all of college football. He had the second most touchdowns in all of college football as well. This is a guy who just has heaps and heaps of talent. Now, last year for Mac Jones, he had 4,500 yards passing along with 41 touchdowns and four interceptions. He had a 10 to 1 interception to touchdown or touchdown to interception rate, which is absolutely incredible. But his game, big game performances were also outmatched. He stepped up to the plate during these big games. In the SEC championship against Florida, the number seventh ranked team at the time, Mac Jones threw for 418 yards, five touchdowns, and only threw one interception. Next, moving into the Rose Bowl against Notre Dame, the college football playoff semifinal. He threw 29 or 297 yards with an 83.3 completion percentage and four touchdowns, no interceptions. He didn't make those mistakes. And then in the national championship game, he outdueled Justin Fields with 
464 yards passing, 80% completion percentage, and five touchdowns and no interceptions. He strove in the biggest games. He showed what kind of quarterback he is, and he showed why he should be drafted in the top 10. Now, I do think Mac Jones is going to drop to probably 12 or 15 or something similar to that. He might even continue to drop beyond that. But I think Mac Jones has the talent to be a top 10 quarterback drafted. I think once he gets drafted, he's going to make an immediate impact. Now, he is a junior this season, but he has been in not the best situation as far as starting quarterbacks go. His 2018 year, he was a backup to Tua Tagovailoa and Jalen Hurts, who's in the NFL right now. In 2019, he was a backup to Tua Tagovailoa, the former number six overall draft pick. And he still had a pretty good year, 14 touchdowns, three interceptions after Tua went down with an injury. But his 2020 year, he finally got to have a full-time year as a starter, and he made the most of it. He showed that he has the ability, and he's got the arm to make every single throw. Now, his decision-making isn't quite perfect, but really the only knock against him is that he doesn't have the mobility of other quarterbacks. And we've seen that success. We've seen quarterbacks without who, who lack mobility with tons of success. Tom Brady, Drew Brees, I mean, those guys don't have much mobility, and they had a ton of success. But again, like I've said, the league is moving towards more mobile quarterbacks, and that's just not what Mac Jones is. So for that reason, he's probably going to fall a little bit further. But for Mac Jones, pocket passer or mobile quarterback or not, whatever it is, he is still talented enough to be a first-round draft pick. He is still going to be a starting quarterback in the NFL at some point in time. He's going to get that opportunity. So I expect him to be a quarterback drafted in the middle of the first round, but he has a ton of upside, and I'm super excited to see what Mac Jones is able to do. He makes the right throws. He makes the right reads. He's got good footwork. He's got a great ability inside the pocket. I expect Mac Jones to potentially be in the running for rookie of the year right away. Obviously, Trevor Lawrence is going to be the favorite for that award as he's going to be the number one overall draft pick most likely, but I think Mac Jones could also be pretty close with that award. Finally, let's talk about Kyle Trask. Now, I'm talking about the top six quarterbacks in the NFL or in this year's draft, and Kyle Trask is the bottom-ranked one. Now, Trask had a good year last season, and there's no doubt about that, but he doesn't quite bring the upside that Mac Jones has. Now, Kyle Trask is a good pocket-passing quarterback. But again, he is a pocket-passing quarterback who isn't going to be able to get things done with his feet. And that's going to hold him back. So when I'm comparing him to another quarterback in this class, I think I should compare him to Mac Jones. Mac Jones is another pocket-passing quarterback who had a great year. But for Kyle Trask, he had a little bit of trouble with throwing interceptions. Now, he had a good 43-8 to touchdown-to-interception rate. He was the leading touchdown thrower in college football this year. He had the second-most yards, so he was capable... <clears throat> he was capable of being a top-tier guy. But his eight interceptions really did cost him a bunch, and I don't know if Kyle Trask has really the mentality at this point to be a starting quarterback in the NFL. I don't think he's going to be a first-round draft pick, but his name and his ability is good enough that he could potentially be drafted in that second or third round. I don't expect him to fall all the way to the fourth. I think that would just be a little bit too much of a stretch for a guy like Kyle Trask who has had a really good college football career. 2019, he also had a really good season, 67% completion, 25 touchdowns, 7 interception. I mean, Kyle Trask has the ability to be a good quarterback in the NFL. He has great size for the quarterback, but 
he doesn't really have a huge arm that other top quarterbacks possess. So he's six foot five. A guy like Trevor Lawrence, who's six foot six, just has a much bigger arm than Kyle Trask. And that's gonna hurt him because he is a pocket passing quarterback. So if he can't make those big time throws down the field, if he can't take those deep shots and and have good success on it, there's just not much upside to Kyle Trask. Now again, if he can excel with his accuracy, if he can get his arm strength up, his upside's going to take off. He's going to have a much higher upside and he could potentially have a good NFL career. I don't think he's a starter right away, but in a couple years he should get an opportunity. And maybe he'll get an opportunity to start or maybe he'll get an opportunity to be a backup, but he's going to be in the NFL for at least the next three or five years. I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, I'll talk about the Atlanta Falcons offseason questions. Stay tuned. The Atlanta Falcons need to make a huge decision this offseason. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you very much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live, bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. The Falcons have to decide this offseason what direction they will move in with their franchise. Now, the Atlanta Falcons have two different options, and these options are both extremely different options that bring different consequences. The first option, which I think is the better option for the Atlanta Falcons, is a rebuild. And let's talk about what a rebuild would mean for the Atlanta Falcons. What would they have to do to go through a rebuild with this team? Are they ready for it? Is this a team positioned for a rebuild, or would it be a little bit early? Well, rebuilding would mean that this team has to trade Matt Ryan. That would be the first thing that this team would have to do. If they want to rebuild this team, Matt Ryan has to be the first one to go. The Atlanta Falcons finished last season 4-12. They've been a loser for the last couple of years, and you really haven't seen too much success from them. So rebuilding means that Matt Ryan would have to go, and they'd have to begin the rebuild and draft a quarterback number four overall. Now, the return for Matt Ryan is a big question. How much could Matt Ryan bring in a trade? Well, that's a little bit difficult to answer because his contract is an expensive one. He signed a five-year, $150 million contract, $150 million contract a few years ago. And he's also still a talented quarterback. But does he move the Super Bowl needle is a big question teams are going to be asked. Last season, he had 4,581 yards, 26 touchdowns, and 11 interceptions, which were all very good numbers. Matt Ryan played his way. I mean, he hasn't slowed down. He hasn't taken a step back in really a, a very long time. He hasn't shown signs of regression for a quarterback who is 35 years old, which is the first big question that teams are going to be wanting to ask. So with that being said, I think Matt Ryan could be traded for a second or third dra- round draft pick. Now, this is a difficult question because Matt Ryan is 35 years old and a team doesn't want to trade too much assets, too much draft capital to get a guy who really doesn't have too much time left in his career. So where should Matt Ryan go? What would a good fit for Matt Ryan be on another team? Well, I think a good fit would be the New England Patriots. The Patriots are a very successful offense when they have a pocket passing quarterback. We saw that with Tom Brady for however long he was there. But when Cam Newton showed up to New England, He really didn't have the same success. 
And I don't think it was all Cam Newton's fault. I don't think Cam Newton was the necessary problem in New England. It's just he wasn't a fit for the scheme that they were running. They didn't have a good wide receiver group. They didn't have great running backs. The offensive line was weak. So Cam Newton wasn't really all that all that much in a great situation, especially for the type of quarterback he is who likes to take off and run the ball. But for Matt Ryan, he fits the role of a pocket-passing quarterback perfectly. And, I mean, we saw how good Tom Brady was in that offense. Potentially, Matt Ryan could be a guy who revives and revitalizes that offense for New England. I mean, we know they have talented players on both sides of the ball, whether that be Andrews on their offensive line or Stephon Gilmore at cornerback or J.C. Jackson, but they they need a, a new quarterback. They need to go down a path where they can really solidify themselves for the next couple of seasons. And I know Matt Ryan is 35 years old, but he still does have a couple seasons left. I'd also say don't be super surprised if the New Orleans Saints make a call. Now, this is a little bit more difficult. Trading Matt Ryan to the New Orleans Saints would be difficult for the New Orleans Saints. They don't have a ton of cap room, but again, they are going to have to put out a little bit of money for their quarterback position. So if they can get the cap space capable, I think Matt Ryan would be a great fit in this offense. This is a team that can win right now. They have Michael Thomas, some decent weapons, Jared Cook. They also have a good offensive line. And with Alvin Kamara and all those weapons on the offense, that could be a dynamic offense in New Orleans if they get a younger Matt Ryan, who assumingly is still able and capable of making those big-time throws, those down-the-field throws that Drew Brees just wasn't really able to make. But for Matt Ryan... He has a little bit of an issue, whether that be the upside that he brings. I mean, we know we saw him back in 2017. He had a tremendous season. He was one of the better quarterbacks in the NFL in 2016, 38 touchdowns, seven interceptions. I mean, he was the MVP for one of these seasons. So what really happened? Why did he take a little bit of a fall off? Well, he didn't have the weapons. He didn't have the ability to make those big time throws and Atlanta's defense wasn't really keeping up. So for the Falcons, they were getting into these close games where Matt Ryan was trying to keep up. Matt Ryan wasn't finishing through. He wasn't winning the games once it came into clutch time. That's a big problem for a team or a a group that wants to win a Super Bowl. If you can't finish the game, if you can't make the clutch plays, you don't really make the big impact that they want. But I don't think Matt Ryan is the only person who should be traded by the Atlanta Falcons. I think they should also trade Julio Jones. Now, Julio Jones isn't too far past his prime and still carries a ton of value. He should bring in at least, at the very least, a first-round draft pick, which is going to be great capital for a team that could be thinking about a rebuild. If they do trade Julio Jones, they have to realize that Calvin Ridley has the ability, he has the capability and the talent to be a number one receiver. And with Julio Jones' injury history, It's hard to overlook putting Calvin Ridley and solidifying him as that number one receiver rather than having that one-two punch with Calvin Ridley and Julio Jones. If Julio Jones can't stay on the the floor, it doesn't really help. Uh, It doesn't really help the Atlanta Falcons get better. So I think they should trade Julio Jones. Jones has a couple options, though, because it might be difficult to find a a trade for Julio Jones or the Atlanta Falcons really might not want to trade him. Jones could follow in the path of Larry Fitzgerald. Larry Fitzgerald was a lifelong Arizona Cardinal player. He is a free agent this offseason, hasn't made his decision whether he's going to retire or not, but he has been a lifelong Arizona Cardinal. And Julio Jones could be the same type of deal. He could be a lifelong Atlanta Falcon if he wants to. 
But if he wants to win and the Falcons go through with a rebuild, it's going to take a couple of years. It's going to take some time to get through that rebuild. And by that time, how old is Julio Jones going to be? Is Julio Jones still going to be as hungry as he was to win a championship? I just don't know. So if Julio Jones does want to get traded, which I could see as a possibility, it would take more time and another rebuild just to keep him. If he wanted to stay, they'd have to go through another rebuild before he was in competition again. But for Julio Jones, winning a Super Bowl might be more important to that. So the Atlanta Falcons might be stuck in a situation where they really have no other options. Now for this team, I think a rebuild is the right idea because they just hired a whole new coaching and general managerial staff. Arthur Smith and Terry Fontenot are coming in to rebuild and reshape this roster. And if they keep Matt Ryan and Julio Jones, yes, they might have a chance to to have a good season, but I'm not sure if they're going to have the future success that they want. I mean, with this current roster that they had, they haven't had any success, really. Their success recently was 2017 when they lost in the Super Bowl. So since then, they've had three losing seasons. Since then, Matt Ryan and Julio Jones haven't really been the same stars that we've seen. So I think this team is ready and willing to go through a rebuild and take a quarterback at number four overall. I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, I'll talk about the Falcons' other option as far as the offseason goes. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports. Now, before the break, we talked about why the Falcons should rebuild. But there's no guarantee that that is the plan that they're going to go through. I think the Falcons would have a much better bet and much more success in the future if they begin a rebuild. But let's talk about what could happen if the Falcons decide not to rebuild. Well, why would they make this decision? Well, this roster has talent. And even though they haven't gotten the wins, they are a team that does have good players on it. The Atlanta Falcons quarterback, Matt Ryan, was the number four leading in yards past this season. That's a good stat line if you're a player for the Atlanta Falcons. They also have decent wide receivers and a pretty solid offense. Defensively is where they struggle a little bit, but they do have uh, they do have talent on that defensive side. Now, as far as defense goes, they have guys like Foyasade Oluokon, who really stepped up this season, was a great tackling linebacker. We also saw Deion Jones. He's young. He's talented. Keanu Neal. I mean, this team has some real talent, but they don't really get off to the quarterback all that well. That was a big issue that they had. Deion Jones was the leading sack getter for this team, and a big reason for that was Dante Fowler didn't really play as well as he could have. And, of course, Dante Fowler's not going to play perfectly (coughs) when he's got double teams most of the games. Grady Jarrett stepped up, and usually he's more of a run-stopping defensive tackle, but he stepped up. He got four sacks this season. But getting after the quarterback has got to be a big concern for the Atlanta Falcons. But if they want to not go through and skip the rebuild, they've got some great options. Arthur Smith has made huge difference with the Titans offense when he was the offensive coordinator. Ryan Tannehill was traded to the Tennessee Titans from the Miami Dolphins, and his career looked just about done. He looked like a perennial backup. He looked like his career was going to be as a perennial backup, and that's really where we thought of Ryan Tannehill. 
But that was until he entered Arthur Smith's offense. Arthur Smith's offense created Ryan Tannehill as a potential star quarterback. Arthur Smith's offense engineered abilities for for Derrick Henry and gave him so many opportunities so he could emerge as a superstar running back. Ryan hasn't been bad by any means, but I think a new offense could potentially return him to his MVP form. Now, like I said, he had a good season this year. He had 4,500 yards, fourth in the NFL. His touchdown to interception ratio wasn't great, 26 to 11, but it wasn't awful. And for Matt Ryan, he still has the ability to be a good starting quarterback in the NFL. So he can be a quality starting quarterback. Now, I think that if he wants to return to his MVP form, the offense around him really needs to change. Todd Gurley has proven he has a ton of talent, and he's still young at 26 years old, but could he go through that same transformation that we saw with Derrick Henry? Could we see Todd Gurley become a running back of that stature, of that ability? I think under Arthur Smith's offense, it gives him a really great chance. And for Matt Ryan, if Todd Gurley can average more than three and a half yards per carry like he did last season, he has the potential to be a much improved running back. And this offense has the potential to be way more than one-dimensional like it was last season. I mean, this team only had 1,500 rushing yards as a team. They only averaged 3.7 yards per carry. So the run game is a big problem for the Atlanta Falcons. And for Matt Ryan, if you can fix that run game, it gives him way more room to breathe and much more opportunity to get that offense going. Now, if they don't decide to pick a quarterback number four overall, they have a couple of options with that pick. Now, what could they do with that pick? They have the option to either draft a superstar receiver, somebody who's going to have an immediate impact at the wide receiver position. And those guys are going to be either Jamar Chase or Devontae Smith. One of those two guys could be selected number four overall. And that would just solidify this Atlanta Falcons receiving corpse as one of the best. I mean, try to imagine an offense with Julio Jones, Calvin Ridley, and then throw in Devontae Smith or Jamar Chase. That's phenomenal. But they already have a solid receiver playing as their number two in Russell Gage. So you add him to the mix, and this wide receiver corpse is completely dynamic. It is completely changed, and the Atlanta Falcons could have a very, very powerful offense. And this could really change how they play next season. If they have an offense that just outmatches the defenses they play, I mean, we've seen it happen, and we've seen the success it brings, like with the Kansas City Chiefs. But I don't know if Ryan himself moves the Super Bowl needle. So if they do trade and decide to trade down and, and use that number four overall draft pick to get more quality or more quantity rather than quality for the pick, I think that would be a great idea. This team has the opportunity to try to get a top 10 pick from a team looking for a quarterback, and I think a good trade partner would be the Denver Broncos. If the Denver Broncos want to move into the top five, the Atlanta Falcons are a team that have the capability, the ability to move down. And if they do that, they would get one high draft pick, probably the number nine pick. They'd also get multiple picks in the future. And this would just help the Falcons try to fix those holes and try to replace those holes. Now, again, they have a new general manager. We don't know what kind of draft he's going to bring. But he's been a great evaluator and scout for the New Orleans Saints for a very long time. So he has the potential and the ability to draft a really good lineup and really fill those holes in well. 
But for the Atlanta Falcons, if they go through this option, it's going to be a little bit of a challenge. Building this roster up through free agency just won't really be in the in the cards. They're at negative $23 million in cap space for Atlanta. So they're going to have to try to work on those contracts, try to get some space up just to be at zero. Now, if they want to get a free agent, it's going to take even more uh, commitment to getting a new or getting that number down to zero or up to about $10 million in cap space. Now, building through the roster or building the roster through the draft is plausible, but it's going to be much, much more difficult. And even though they do have a high draft pick who's going to be an immediate impact player, they could potentially move that around. So it's interesting to see what this Atlanta Falcons team decides to do. But for me, if I'm the Atlanta Falcons, it's time for a rebuild. The option to keep this roster and try to move forward is plausible, but I don't see this as a Super Bowl winning team. That's really what teams are, are going for. So if this team can't peak out at a Super Bowl level, what is the point of keeping them together? I don't think there is any. I think if you go through a rebuild, you get your guys together and you say, all right, we're going to have a couple down years, but we're going to really try to build this roster up to succeed. I think there's going to be some guys who are really interested in taking part in that transition. The Atlanta Falcons hired a good general manager in Terry Fontenot. They hired a good head coach in Arthur Smith, so it's going to be interesting to see what they do come this offseason. For me, it's got to be a rebuild. But I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, I'll talk about the Denver Nuggets and the LA Lakers and their face-off last night. Stay tuned. The Denver Nuggets defeated the Los Angeles Lakers last night. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed, and the Denver Nuggets showed they have the talent to beat the LA Lakers. Now, let's not overreact to this win for the Denver Nuggets. This win came because Anthony Davis left the game with an injury. Before Anthony Davis left with a re-aggravating his Achilles injury, this Denver Nuggets team was really neck and neck with the Lakers throughout the entire night. But then once Anthony Davis went down with an injury, the Nuggets started to take off, and they really propelled themselves into a position to win this game. Now, a big reason they won this game was because of the three-point percentages, the three-point shooting from the LA Lakers. They went completely cold from the three-point line. That was a big problem for the Denver Nuggets. But the Nuggets took off after Anthony Davis really got hurt. So why did the Nuggets win this game, and how big of an impact does this have for them in the future? Can they outmatch the LA Lakers if they get the opportunity? Well, Jokic played like an MVP. And that's really what the Denver Nuggets need if they want to win games down the line. They need improvements from all parts of the ball. Nikola Jokic had 23 points, 10 assists, and 16 rebounds. He had a triple-double, which is great for a guy like Nikola Jokic. as the leader for the Denver Nuggets. But another guy stepped up, and he's been a little bit more inconsistent, and that was Jamal Murray. Now, Jamal Murray had 25 points, 6 rebounds, and 4 assists, but Jamal Murray has kind of had a little bit more issues on... Uh, his consistency. The consistency Jamal Murray has shown for the Denver Nuggets has just not really been all that great. He hasn't been a consistent shooter. He hasn't been consistently putting up 20 to 25 points like you would expect for him to do with this Denver Nuggets team. And even though on the season he's been decent, his inconsistencies have really lowered those points per game numbers. Right now he's at 18 and a half points per game, but I think Jamal Murray has the capability, has the talent 
to really transform those numbers and do much better than that. His 44% from the field, his 34% from three, just isn't good enough. He's got to be one of the best shooters on this team, and he hasn't been, and that's been a big problem for the Denver Nuggets. So if Jamal Murray can get going and Jokic can play at an MVP level, this Denver Nuggets team might look a little bit better. But with Anthony Davis on the floor, I'm not sure the Nuggets can outmatch the Lakers in a full-length game or a full-length seven-game series. Now, they have an up-and-coming rookie or a few up-and-coming young guys who could potentially be the difference makers for the Denver Nuggets. Zeke Naji played really well last night, and he's put up numbers when given the opportunity, even though his minutes aren't really great. For, De- for Zeke Naji... When he's been given more than 10, 15 minutes, he showed up to the plate and he's really performed at a high level. He's shown that he's a good shooter. He's got the capability to put up big numbers. Against the Lakers, he was 4 for 5 from 3. He had 16 points. He played decent defensively. And I mean, this is really one of his only games where he got more than 5 or 6 minutes. Now against Cleveland a couple days ago as well, Zeke Naji played extremely well. He had 19 minutes. He ended up with 14 points on 67% three-point shooting. Obviously, his consistency from the three-point line is going to change. He's not going to stay at 60%, but he's shown the ability of taking those three-point shots, and that's a big thing for this Denver Nuggets team. They really have some inconsistent shooters who can go cold in any given moment. Gary Harris, Jamal Murray, Will Barton, all of these guys are hot and cold shooters, so bringing in another shooter, especially at the power forward position, is going to be helpful for the Denver Nuggets. But when I look at this team, their reserves are what really scare me. I know Gary Harris being a starter is not a great situation for the Nuggets to be in, but when I look at the way their reserves are set up, they have too many guards. Now, for the Denver Nuggets, they are running a multiple guard small forward situation so will barton who's truly a shooting guard has been playing backup small forward and backup shooting guard then we're also getting a lot of time from point guard monte morris point guard jamal murray shooting guard gary harris shooting guard pj dozier point guard facundo Campazzo. i mean that's just too many point guards to be spreading the minutes around too many guards to be putting onto the court at once And it's been getting this Nuggets team into some defensive problems. They haven't had the ability to stop the offenses, uh, especially of these more talented teams when that reserve unit is out there because they don't have the size necessary for it. Yes, they have a guy like P.J. Dozier who's playing at the shooting guard position at 6'6", but he's really a more true shooting guard than small forward. And putting him as a forward is a little bit iffy when he steps onto the court. Now for the Denver Nuggets... This talent isn't a bad thing. They have the talent at the guard position, but they don't have enough reserve forwards. They don't have enough guys to come off the bench uh, for Nikola Jokic or MPJ or for Paul Millsap when they come off. Yes, they have Jermichael Green, but beyond that, Isaiah Hartenstein was the only one really getting minutes. And Hartenstein has played well, averaging four rebounds or excuse me, four points and three rebounds through eight minutes a game. But they're going to need to find somebody who can really step into that role as a perimeter patrolling big man. Now, Zeke Naji, I don't know if he can be a great defender like that, but Isaiah Hartenstein is really the only guy that the Nuggets have found to be a replacement for Nikola Jokic. Now, this leaves me to a couple of questions. Can the Denver Nuggets beat the Los Angeles Lakers if Anthony Davis doesn't go down with this injury? And I don't think so. I don't think this team has the talent 
to keep up with the LeBron and Anthony Davis-led team. Now, of course, if Anthony Davis is, is injured, this Nuggets team looks like they can match up really well. But I don't think they're quite there or quite ready to win an NBA championship with the roster that they have. I think if they want to get to that point, they need to make a trade. And as far as playoff teams go, they're one of the most well-positioned playoff teams to make a trade and to make a move. They currently own all of their first-round draft picks in the future, and they have young talent that is capable of being moved. Whether that be Gary Harris or P.J. Dozier or Monte Morris, there are some really talented players on this Nuggets roster and a little bit of a logjam at that point guard position. Now, I expect Facundo Campazzo to stay and, and have a big role on this team moving forward. Uh, the reason being is he seems like uh, a signing that really is a personality reason. They signed him because he's got the personality to be on, on this team. We've seen Jokic and how talented he is, but the personality on this team is really a, a joking personality. And for Facundo Campazzo, we saw this in, in last night's game when he was at the free throw line. And he had a whirly right around the, the basket. He shot up a free throw and it spun and spun and spun all the way around the basket. And all we can see from Facundo Campazzo was him and his uh, swirling as well, following the ball, trying to make sure it, uh, to, to get it in. So I think Facundo Campazzo is going to stay on this roster. But as far as Gary Harris, Monte Morris, Will Barton go, those are guys who could potentially be moved. And I wouldn't be expecting or I wouldn't expect anything otherwise. Now, who are the options for the Nuggets to get? I think there's two options that fit really perfectly. The first one is Bradley Beal. And I've talked about Bradley Beal and his uh, potential trade to the Denver Nuggets before, but I think it really fits now more than ever. Bradley Beal is averaging 32.8 points per game, but he's also on an expiring contract on a losing team. The Wizards are not playing very well this season. They're not going to make the postseason so for Bradley Beal, he's playing all for nothing. And all the opportunities that he's getting to score all these points are all for a regular season team that's not going to make the postseason. That's not going to be even really competitive when it comes to facing off against the higher-end teams. But Bradley Beal deserves better. Bradley Beal would fill a huge scoring need that the Denver Nuggets don't have. They don't have a shooting guard who's really capable of putting up big-time points. Gary Harris is the starting shooting guard, and he's an offensive liability at times. Now, Bradley Beal is going to be an expensive trade if that trade does go through. But the Nuggets have the, the capital, they have the potential to make that deal, but re-signing and making sure Bradley Beal sticks around for the long haul is really what's the important part for the Denver Nuggets in a trade for Bradley Beal. Now, if they want to play a slightly lower price, they could try to go after DeMar DeRozan. And I think DeMar DeRozan would be a good fit for that shooting guard, small forward position. He's a good scorer. But for the San Antonio Spurs, I'm not sure if they're going to be as willing to part with DeMar DeRozan as I think the Wizards would be with Bradley Beal. The Spurs are a playoff team right now. They're ahead of the Denver Nuggets. Now, they don't have the talent that the Denver Nuggets have, and I don't think they're going to make really too deep of a push come playoff time. But DeMar DeRozan has still been very good. And he still carries a ton of value for the San Antonio Spurs. He's averaging 20 points a game with 5 rebounds and 7 assists. He's showing his ability to not only finish at the hoop, uh, but to also shoot the ball. Now he's not a great shooter and he doesn't shoot that 3-point shot all too much. 
But I think adding DeMar DeRozan to the mix could potentially give that third or fourth score that the Nuggets really need. I mean, think about it. DeMar DeRozan going on to a roster and getting into a starting group with Jamal Murray, Nikola Jokic, Paul Millsap, and MPJ. I mean, that starting lineup sounds elite. And let's not forget, DeMar DeRozan is also a good defender. So I think if the Denver Nuggets want to compete with the LA Lakers, and that's got to be their goal. Their goal has to be compete with the LA Lakers because they're the top team in the West. If the Nuggets can make it to uh, the championship game, if they can end up doing that or the championship series, they're going to have to go through the Lakers. They're going to have to go through teams like the Clippers. And we've seen them beat the Clippers in a seven-game series. We've seen them beat the Jazz in a seven-game series. But the Lakers completely outmatched the Denver Nuggets. And without a trade, I don't see them beating or getting through a seven-game series against the Lakers. Now I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, there's been some positional clarity in Brooklyn. Stay tuned. There has been some positional clarity in Brooklyn. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in every single Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. The Nets have figured out who is going to run point guard this season. Kyrie Irving came out and said to the media uh, the last couple of days that him and Harden had the conversation and came to the conclusion that James Harden would run point and Kyrie Irving would run shooting guard. Now, this is a big deal for the Brooklyn Nets because it was a lot of questions on who was going to be the primary ball handler, primary playmaker for this Brooklyn Nets team. And it seemed like it was going to be James Harden just based off of his performance with the team. His assist numbers have been up. But this doesn't put them in a lockjam, and I want to make that clear. With James Harden and Kyrie Irving saying... James Harden is the point guard. Kyrie Irving is the shooting guard. All it says is they're going to give more playmaking opportunities to James Harden, which isn't a bad thing for this Brooklyn Nets team as they really do have a ton of talent on this roster. Uh, Kyrie Irving, 27.6 points per game. He's not passing quite as much as we've seen him, but he's really turned it up as far as scoring goes. He's been an absolutely great shooter this year, shooting 52.5% from the field and 41% from three. So him becoming and taking over as the shooting guard of this team makes a lot of sense. Uh, The reason why James Harden doesn't make as much sense as the shooting guard is he's more of a volume type of player. He is more successful and one of the better scorers in the country when it comes to him giving a high volume of shots. Now, when you have guys like Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, it really doesn't make sense to give James Harden 20, 30 shots a game. James Harden's really much better fit for about 15, while you get your other shooters, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, more about 20. Now, for James Harden, this isn't a bad role. He's not getting the raw end of the deal for the Brooklyn Nets. He's a great passer, and he's been the best passer in all of basketball this season, averaging 11.6 assists. This is just going to make the Brooklyn Nets better. The fact that the Brooklyn Nets came to this decision and are of the understanding that they need to make sure to solidify a point guard, that they need to make sure to solidify a ball handler for their team, that's the big deal. That's the big thing for this team. Now, the Nets have been struggling a little bit as of late. They've won two of the last five games And that's not really where this team thinks they are. 
A big problem is they don't have a big man. They don't have a big man who's capable of really putting up numbers and taking over as a rebounder. And that's what the Brooklyn Nets need. They can't rely on a guy like DeAndre Jordan to be their leading rebounder. when Really, he's not super capable of the job. So far this season, this season in 21 minutes played, DeAndre Jordan averages 7 rebounds per game. But his big issue has been lack of effort on the defensive end. He needs to be a perimeter-protecting center. That is the job that they got him for, is to protect the paint and to get rebounds. They don't need him to score. They already have Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and James Harden for that. They need DeAndre Jordan to step up and take over a big-time role as a rebounder. And that hasn't happened. So the Brooklyn Nets, I think, need to consider themselves a team looking for a move. Now, for Andre Drummond, him and the Cavaliers are in a pretty in a pretty difficult situation. Andre Drummond wants out, and the Cleveland Cavs are probably going to let him out. But that means they're going to try to get some sort of trade value for Andre Drummond's last year of his contract. And it's going to be an expensive contract. It's going to cost a lot of money for these teams. So getting that contract on the books will be difficult for the Brooklyn Nets. But if they can figure out a way to get Andre Drummond and bring him in for a trade, I think he would have a phenomenal impact on this team. They need a guy who can patrol the paint, who can get those rebounds. And DeAndre, or excuse me, Andre Drummond is one of those guys who is just talented enough to be one of the best rebounders in the game. Now for Andre Drummond, he's been phenomenal all season long, and I think it's going to happen that he gets traded soon. He's averaging 17.5 points and 13.5 rebounds, along with 1.2 blocks. And those block numbers are what's really important for a team like this. For the Cleveland Cavaliers, trading Andre Drummond makes sense. He's going to be a free agent soon. He doesn't have too much time left as a Cleveland Cavalier and as a guy who almost averages 15 and 15, he could potentially bring in a lot for a trade. Now, there's a couple teams outside of uh, there's a couple teams outside of the Nets who want to make a move. And I think the team that really is going to try to push forward that isn't the Nets is the Toronto Raptors. Now, if the Toronto Raptors can end up bringing in a big man and replacing Aaron Baines, I think this team really takes a step forward. But again, they would need to trade contract and, and, and they would need to trade a player to try to fill that contract obligation. It would make things much, much more difficult. But for the New York Nets, or the Brooklyn Nets, excuse me, I think they're going to be a very, very talented team this year. And now that they have some positional clarity, they got to get down and focus and really look forward to uh, winning an NBA championship. They have the potential. They need to start making sure that they have the depth. The depth is what's been hurting them. They traded away Karis LeVert, Jared Allen, Torian Prince. They traded a lot of their guys to bring in James Harden, and that really messed with their depth a ton. Now, they did get the exception for Spencer Dinwiddie, so Spencer Dinwiddie is going to help them in the fact that since he tore his ACL, the Nets are going to be able to sign somebody else. And it gives them a little bit of money to work with, which they haven't quite worked with yet. So I think the Brooklyn Nets have the opportunity and the potential to be the number one team in the NBA this year. Now I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, I'm going to talk about the Daytona 500 that took place yesterday. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Up for Debate. 
I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. I will be here live. Now, we have one more segment left into the show, and I brought in the Rich Report, Cam Richardson, to talk about the Daytona 500 that happened this weekend. Cameron, what is your takeaway from the Daytona 500 this weekend? Man, oh man, had we not piled up the entire field on lap 15 before the rain delay came, we'd probably get an exciting uh, nightcap to the Daytona 500, similar to 2014 and 2012. But, you know, once you wreck out a third of the field that early on, of course, you're going to get what you saw last night if you did tune into it. Everybody decided to run single file and then wait till the final laps to play it out. And even then they ran single file until the final lap because nobody trusted each other and they thought if we ran too wide through wide get aggressive that we just all end up you know wrecked so i get why they play conservative for the entire time but it just that 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 big wreck i knew at the beginning i'm like it's the, the whole spark of the daytona 500 was just gone and even though i was happy to see it restart last night it's still you know it just it, it didn't feel like the Daytona 500 didn't feel like the Super Bowl stock car racing. It just felt like another race. Well, and yeah, and I know you guys at home don't know this, but we have a poll here in the MIC uh, picking these races. And Cam, your race car driver had a little bit of issues on lap 15. Yeah, he was in the wreck. <laughs> so Cam picked Eric Amarola, and I picked Kevin Harvick. Kevin Harvick got fourth place in the race. It was a a rough start for the race. I mean, 15 laps in and half the field just about was already taken out. So, I mean, that I think that hurt the Daytona 500, but there was so much excitement even later on. And and the end of the race, another crash, a big-time crash. I think that was an exciting finish to the race. We got a new winner, Michael McDowell, who has never won a NASCAR race. His first race ever winning the Daytona 500. Arizona native, too. Arizona native, and it's his. he's the second... Uh, second longest driver uh, to not win a race before most races, second most races before he won his first race. So exciting there. So so what do you think this does mean, this Daytona 500 win? What do you think it means for Michael McDowell? It's a guy that has paid his dues, just been a, a true journeyman across NASCAR, if you were to compare to anybody, any other sport. You know, his one highlight, if you go and look it up, is a terrifying qualifying crash at Texas Motor Speedway in 2008. I believe where his car got loose going into turn one and he went head head on into the outside wall and flipped about 10, 11 times. That was his highlight. But now, you know, he goes from that, you know, is probably his lowest point in racing to winning, you know, the biggest NASCAR race of the year. And so that finally just wipes it away. You know, it's, it's him getting his credit for, you know, paying all his dues in the past. And, and talking about the crash early on, I know that there was a, On lap 15, half the field was just about taken off. Do you think this is going to have any sort of impact on the future races or set some sort of standard for how they're going to race this season? It all depends on what they do with, you know, they have a brand new entire car for 2022. So obviously we need to see how that plays out when they do testing and all that. But uh, it just it just comes down to it. It's one of two things. It's either the. The aero package itself that they use where you just get the car just get too big of runs in the draft or, you know, just has to come down to the driver mindset, because obviously in the past it was a deeper field of more talented drivers. Now it's okay, pay to get in and you'll pretty much race your way in no matter how talented you are or not. 
just feels like guys get overly aggressive. And of course, if you get overly aggressive, this is a product of racing. Now, you know, it wasn't Christopher Bell's fault. People are going to make Christopher Bell the scapegoat because he's the one that ended up turning on Rolla. But that was just getting pushed. And of course, when you're not straight on with somebody and you turn and you're on, you know, one part of their rear bumper and not dead on in the middle, of course, it's going to end up turning them. But we just we can't be too aggressive 15 laps in. It's just there's no there was no excuse for that. I was uh, upset with it. A lot of racing fans are probably going to be upset with it. And the Daytona 500 ratings probably won't be as great for the nighttime because if you had a favorite driver out in the first 15 laps, you know, did you really didn't have an incentive to watch anymore. So just a shame that it happened. So, I mean, there's nothing you can really do about it. And and so you were talking a little bit about the, the air packages that these cars are, are bringing in and how that affects them driving on that lower part of the lane. It seemed like last night and, and yesterday when they were racing, every single driver was really avoiding that lower part of the lane. Why do you think that was? I just, for some reason, Dale Jr. was pretty much the start of it. You know, his nickname is the Pied Piper of Super Speedway Racing because he started that whole single file train. Now, everybody would follow him and then, you know, it's kind of just, okay, wait and see if anybody's going to be willing or daring to make that pass. It wasn't much so, you know, the inside line just wasn't going to work. It's just that you need to build up. When you got 15 cars drafting a single line, of course, that's going to build more momentum. They're going to have more speed. So when only three or four guys want to drop down, you know, of course, they're going to get shuffled back to the back. So that's just how the draft works. You're only going to build speed if you have an equal amount of cars together. So when nobody drops or it's only two, three guys, of course, you're not going to get a big run to go and contend for the lead. So people were just too scared to go down and try to attempt, you know, racing. And they just were pretty much satisfied with running where they were until the final lap. Well, yeah. And seemingly, this is a pretty big problem. I mean, any time that somebody got caught in that lower lane, they didn't really get too much help, and that was a big problem, but then they started to fall. So anybody who was even daring enough to try to make that attempt, we saw Kevin Harvick on that second stage trying to to make an attempt to get a push into that top-tier, top spot. He took that outside lane and fell all the way out of competition. I think that could be a real big issue moving forward if, I mean, if you're only watching, like you said, the one train of NASCAR, I just don't think there's enough positional movement or positional changes if they're not using or utilizing both lanes yeah it just i mean it comes with only having 18 co- competitive cars left for the rest of the race because obviously some tried staying in but they were destroyed and they were not gonna be able to keep up with the lead draft but it wasn't it wasn't just so oh well you know they can't just build a run by themselves you know obviously at a track like daytona or talladega where you're running full throttle the entire time you're not breaking you're not checking up unless you know the field you know checks up in accordions like that but you just you have to build that draft and you have to have the same amount of cars go with you that are you know on the top so you can't have you know eight guys at the top and only three run at the bottom because that's just not going to work out it has to be you know six five five six depending on uh the type the which cars are down there so well yeah and i i mean i think that was an opening issue for this season do you think there's any remedy to getting those cars to be a little bit more brave it's 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 hard because obviously you want to you you like being in sixth place it sets you up better for a potential finish to go after the run you know nobody wants to be the last car in line because it's up to everybody else to make that move you know you can't be the one to make that move because obviously no one's gonna follow you because you got no one behind you so 
it's it's just it's just one of those races where you get you take out half the field early and everybody just you know is just too scared to race because they think okay i'm gonna end up piling up if we do force it two three wide and that's what you saw last night all right so you think the a, a big product if, there, of... if the big wreck doesn't happen on lap 15 and everybody's still racing we probably have a much better race but because of that wreck people being scared to make daring moves it just it kind of that big wreck and i knew from the beginning that once that wreck happened i'm like we're not gonna get the same thing because there's only 18 cars that are gonna be competing for the rest of this thing so you know you're, that's what happens you have no momentum going there's only you know a certain amount of cars left it just it just wasn't gonna happen and with all of those cars wrecking out so early in the race you think that's going to have a major impact on the way the drivers drive at the early stages of the of the race in the future? Well, that's the crazy part because I go back to last year and I watched the first Talladega race and like nobody wrecked, but they were racing aggressively. And it was one of the best super speedway races there's ever been. And that was because of, you know, them fixing the car compared to 2018, 2019, where they were pretty squirrely if you got to... You took the air off of somebody's car. They would just spin out and you wreck, you know, the entire field. But they changed that. And I watched Talladega last year and I go, this race is almost perfect. And then I watched uh, the August Daytona race last year. Everybody was driving aggressively, you know, trying to get to the front because you need those points to advance to the playoffs. It was the last race before the playoffs. Great race. Sure, people started piling up at the end. But even when, you know, they were getting aggressive early on, nobody was really wrecking each other. They were being you know, aggressive to get to the front, but not to the point where they were going to wreck each other. And then obviously there was the Talladega race in October and that's a can of worms. I really don't want to open right now because that race was an absolute mess. And this pretty much the same thing happened in the Daytona 500. Just guys want to push too hard when they know that, Hey, if I push this guy too hard in front of me, he's probably going to get loose and it's probably going to cause a big wreck. And they still choose not to, they still choose to get overly aggressive and, that's what leads to massive wrecks. It's a product of super speedway racing, but at the same time, you can't just blame it on the racing itself. It has to be a driver mindset as well. Well, yeah, and that wreck was at the front of the pack, so it took out, I mean, Martin Truex, Eric Alamarola, Ryan Blaney. Alex Bowman, our pole sitter. Yeah, the pole sitter, Alex Bowman. I mean, a good crop of really talented drivers who had the opportunity or really had an expectation to finish well in this race. So I, I think it did have a, a huge impact. I'm hoping... Uh, for these future races that it's a it's more of a cautious aggressiveness rather than an aggressiveness to try to get to the front try to be that lead lap guy and and keep everybody behind you i, I know clean air is important but keeping your car alive and and making it to where the clean air actually matters i think is more important uh well that's going to do it for up for debate today thank you very much to cam richardson for showing up make sure you guys follow him on social medias at the rich report also tune in to him on wednesday from 8 to 10 a.m where he's going to be bringing a rich report show on kjack radio same station as you're listening to right now that's going to do it for up for debate make sure to follow me on social medias at the underscore Cade reed and i will see you guys on wednesday at one thank you very much